Um, today, we're continuing in our teaching series that we began last week in the book of Joshua. The series is called Victorious, so the gospel in the book of Joshua. It's called that because the book of Joshua shows us the victory that Jesus has won for us. Everything in Joshua is a foreshadowing, a preparing for, a pointing to Jesus, our Yeshua, our King, our victorious captain who leads us to have victory over the enemy and what struggles we may have. And so what we're seeing in Joshua is it's all pointing to the gospel of Jesus. Now, this all began about 4,000 years ago. Now, really, in eternity past, God the Father had his plan. But in our time and space, 4,000 years ago, God made specific promises to a very real person who actually lived. His name was Abraham. And God made promises to Abraham. And he told him in three particular parts of the promise was that he would have descendants. A vast number of descendants, more than the stars in the sky or more than the the sand in the sea. And so he promised Abraham descendants, and second, he promised him blessings. He says, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you. So God promised, promised blessings, but not even just to him, but he promised to bless all the families, all the peoples of the planet through a descendant of Abraham. So he promised him descendants and blessings and land. He promised him a specific plot of land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. As we will see later in the book, as this begins to unfold more, we'll see how even that land promise was bigger than that part of real estate. It was pointing to the entire planet, the new earth, where the final, the better Joshua, Jesus, is ruling over his people on the whole planet. And so God's plan was far more than one piece of land, but this is where it began. This is how God is beginning to unfold and to reveal his plan for redemption so that he can dwell among a holy people that will see his glory, that they will savor his goodness and enjoy God forever. And we see that in Revelation, God dwelling with his people forever as we enjoy him and as we enjoy each other. And so the way this began was God made promises to Abraham. Now Abraham's descendants grew into being a very large nation. They were enslaved by the evil Egyptian empire. And so this nation is enslaved. God heard the cries of his people. And as a loving and compassionate father who is mighty to save, he raises up Moses, who then leads God's people out of captivity, out of slavery and misery, to be free, to enjoy God. But then they rebel. And so they spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And that entire generation dies. And now it's time for a new generation with a new leader, Joshua, to lead the people of God across the Jordan River into the land that God promised to their ancestor Abraham 500 years earlier. So God is faithful. And five centuries is nothing for our eternal God. He remembers his promises, and with Joshua we see now he is keeping them. He makes them, and faithful to keep them. So the theme of the book of Joshua, and including our teaching series for this next few months, is that God 
faithfully leads his people to victory over the enemy and gives them rest. It's there on the screens. And so what we see here, if you're taking notes, is that God faithfully leads his people to victory over the enemy and gives them rest. Well, maybe it's going to be on the screens here in a minute. So ultimately, this victory that we have, everything that you're seeing in Joshua, which we'll see in the coming weeks, having victory over the enemy and the Canaanites, is pointed to the ultimate reality that we have an enemy who is opposing the people of God. And we know that he is a personal being. Yes, he's invisible. Yes, he's a spirit. But Satan is real. And he opposes the people of God. And Jesus conquered the enemy as we sung beautifully. Ours is the victory when he was resurrected from the dead. And so Jesus' victory is our victory. And so we can have victory over the enemy in our lives because Jesus has already defeated him. His days are numbered. His end is coming. And so Christ's victory can give us victory. So through the power of Jesus, his spirit that lives in believers, he helps us. He empowers us. He convicts us of our sin. He is one that is sanctifying us, making us more holy. So the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers and helps us to have victory over our struggles. Now, what are these struggles I'm talking about that we can have victory over? Well, if you read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16... He tells us, he says, the desires of the flesh and desires of the eyes and the pride of life. And if you keep reading, three chapters later in chapter 5, he says that we have victory over the world. And this is the world, the world as in desires of the flesh and of the eyes and the pride of life. And so we're to, as Apostle Paul says, fight the good fight. We're to fight this good fight against these desires that we have. So sometimes we give Satan too much credit. Sometimes it's Satan, all he has to do is remind you of, your te- of, of you know, tempt you with your own desires. And there we are following it very quickly with no opposition to him. And so we, we can't blame Satan. He does oppose us. He does tempt us. He does oppress. Absolutely. It's very real. And yet the desire is already inside of us. It's in us. And so we can be our own enemy. And so we can have victory over our own sin, over our enemy, and one day even over death itself. And so knowing and truly enjoying Jesus, remembering that sin does not satisfy, that's the key. We have to remember this. No one believed this, that sin does not satisfy. We think it will, but it won't. It's a terrible return on your investment. You, you invest in sin, and the only return you get is pain and destruction and brokenness and misery and enslavement. And so we remember that sin does not satisfy, and so this, there's this fight. This fight for what? This fight for joy. This fight to treasure Jesus more than the sin that we can cherish. Say no, and to focus on Christ. But how does this work practically in day-to-day living? How how can we experience this victory over desires of the flesh and desires of the eyes and pride of life? How, how can we have victory over that? You trust Jesus. It sounds so simple. But faith, the answer is faith. You trust Jesus. Trust is required 
for victory. You don't trust Jesus. You don't trust your captain leading you into, into the battle. If you don't trust Jesus, then you will not have victory over the enemy. You won't. And so let's get the main idea, the primary truth out of Joshua chapter 2, where we're going to be looking today. We saw Joshua chapter 1 last week. Today we'll be in chapter 2. So as we begin to study it, let me just give you the primary truth, and we'll see it unfold throughout this chapter. Is that God's revealed character produces trust in his people. So God is revealing himself. He was showing who he is, and as he reveals his character, his splendor, his magnificence, his absolute glory, as he's revealing who he is, and as that begins to grip our souls, his spirit begins to work in us, and we then respond with trust. So I'll begin with God revealing himself. So God's revealed character is what produces trust in his people. So it's a fight to see. To see what? To see more value and more glory and more joy and more worth in Jesus, more satisfaction, more meaning in Jesus than any of the idols that we could give our hearts to. And when we see it, when we savor it, and we enjoy it, what will happen is we will live lives for his glory. And the key here is trust. Now the word trust and belief and faith, by the way, are all the same word. If you look in the New Testament, for example, it's the exact same word, belief, faith, or trust. And so those can be used interchangeably in English. Same thing for the Hebrew. It's the same essence of what you believe in, you have faith in, you're trusting in. But I believe the word trust is very helpful for us in the 21st century today because the word faith sometimes just refers to a religion. Oh, I, I have my faith in it's Islam or Buddhism or whatever. And so sometimes words can lose their meaning. And so even though the word faith is absolutely biblical, I'm going to use the word trust this morning. But understand what we're talking about. We're talking about faith. We're talking about believing God, trusting in Him. And so we're talking about here is what, is what does trust look like? What does it look like to really have faith in God in everyday life, really exercising your faith, trusting in Him? As we look at Joshua 2, I want you to be paying attention I don't want you to just be sitting there, okay, is you almost done? Is it time for lunch yet? No, hang with me. And try not to be paying attention in this story because it's describing faith, describing what it looks like to truly trust in God. It's revealing who God is, revealing who we are and how we should respond to Him. So we're going to look at three truths. It is here on, on the screens. There are three particular truths that we're going to be finding. I won't tell them to you yet. We'll look through the story, and then at the end, I'll tell you what they are. See if you can identify them as we're looking at the story together. So these three truths are, well, what is the basis for our trust? And what is the essence of our trust? And what is the result of our trust? So again, faith. What, what, what is the basis for our faith in Jesus? And what is it made of, the substance, the essence and, and when you really do have this trust in Christ, well, what does it look like? What is the result of it? And so let's begin by looking at Joshua chapter 2, and we'll see what God has for us to shape our lives for his glory. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. 
So just the first half of chapter 1, verse 1 rather, it says that he sent these two spies to, to scout the land, and especially Jericho, the main city, very fortified city that was about 10 kilometers just east of the Jordan River. At this point, the Israelite camp was just on the west side of the Jordan River. And just 10 kilometers in, what you had was a major city, Jericho. And all around there were many villages and farmland, and it was like a kingdom. At this point in history, Canaan did not have one central government. It wasn't one nation. It was a bunch of very small little city-states. Like Abu Dhabi, not exactly, but similar, where the laws here are not the same as in Dubai or in RAK. They're different. They're all, they're all individual states, but they're united. But sometimes it seems like they're less united than they are united. That's for a different day. What you had here in Canaan was completely separate city-states, like kingdoms. And so Jericho was more of a kingdom. So we'll see here in a minute, there was actually a king in Jericho, a very powerful, fortified City. Now remember, 40 years earlier, Joshua was a spy, along with his friend Jacob, and then 10 not-so-good spies. Remember that? Yes? No? Well, trust me, it happened. It's in the Bible. So 40 years earlier, he had been one of the spies. Well, the other ones didn't believe, and so now they had to spend 40 years in the wilderness. But now he sends two spies. So he's a good general. He's trying to make plans and preparations for taking over the land. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God promised the land. But he's still responsible to go and be a good, wise general. So he sends them. And what happens? Second half of verse 1. And they went. So he says, go. And they went. And they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now, upon first reading, you think, really? That's the best you could do? Like, there's these two spies, men of God, representing the people of God to go claim the promises. And the first place to go is the prostitute's home. And you, and you just, you kind of scratch your head and say, what, what's going on with this? But first of all, I'll put you at ease. When you look at the language and the context, we'll look at later in the same chapter. There's zero indication that they went in there for Rahab's, how we say it, services. There's no indication that they had any immoral intent in going there. The original language seems to indicate that this was more of an inn than a house. It was more like a, a hostel, and so it, where travelers can come and stay and rent rooms. And so this was probably not what you would picture in a, a CD place where you would go and it's all prostitutes. It's not like that. It was probably an inn, and, and they were just lodging there. Now, granted, of course, there were prostitutes available there, but that's, that wasn't the primary function of this place. And, and why this was helpful is these men could go in undetected as travelers, meet other people, gather information, do their reconnaissance, their scouting, without being, you know, standing out in another place where maybe there'd be less traffic. So this is actually a great place for them to go and accomplish their mission of, of getting a sense of what's going on in Jericho. So they, they go to this inn. Now, verses 2 and 3. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, the men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho said to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men 
who have come to you and entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. Now, I don't know how much training these guys had in espionage, but they're not very good spies because the very first day they already got busted. And so I, I, I think of Lord of the Rings where, where you first have Frodo and Samwise are, are going into Dancing Pony and, and they're trying to find you know, Gandalf and they're sticking out like a sore thumb and everyone knows those hobbits don't belong here. And so that's, this is kind of what's going on. These guys are standing out. They're talking to people. They're asking questions. And everyone's like, okay, those two, they're spies. It was pretty easy for them. So I don't think they have much training. But it doesn't matter because God was with them. And God is bigger than our shortcomings. So, so they're, they're uncovered, okay? And so what happens? They, they call Rahab, and now, and now she's going in for questioning by the authorities, verses 4 through 7. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do, uh, I'm sorry, they went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order, uh, uh, on the roof in order. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So, so just some context here so you understand what's going on. Is in the ancient world, they would make linen out of the fibers of flax stalk. And so what, what happened is they would soak these, these long fibers in stagnant water so, yes, it doesn't smell very good soaked in stagnant water. But then they would take it out, and then they would dry it and be able to take the fibers apart and then make linen. So this process involves soaking the fibers or the stalks and then drying and, and this, this long process. And, again, stagnant water, this is a very smelly experience. And so she takes these two guys, and she hides them among this soggy, sloppy, just smelling horrible mess. And so if you can just imagine these guys, they know they're in trouble. They know that they've already been uncovered. Their cover's been blown. And so a lady that they just met, don't know her very well. She's a prostitute by profession. And she's hiding them on her roof among these, these drying, soaking stalks of flax. Imagine their hearts pounding and wondering if... If the troops come up here on the roof, we're done. But they don't. The troops never bother to question Rahab or check out her house. Maybe they didn't have a warrant. I don't know. But they didn't check out her house. They just took her word for it. And she sends them on a wild goose chase. Says, oh, they must have left before the gates were closed at night. Hurry, go to the ford. The, the ford is the shallow part, the crossing, so that the Jordan River is very difficult to cross unless you had a boat. But there was one section not far from Jericho, which was the main crossing known as the ford. So ford means shallow crossing. And so they go there to look for them. Now, at this point, it says that they shut the gate. And so now there's no way out. No one's coming in. No one's going out until they can find these two spies who are hiding upstairs. Verse 8 says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof, 
So before they went to bed that night, they were still hiding in these flax stalks. And she goes to have a conversation with them. A very important conversation, verses 9 through 11. And said to them, I know the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens and above and on the earth beneath. Amazing. Absolutely remarkable. We'll look at this text much more in our home groups this week and see what God reveals and how this text helps you understand the whole book of Joshua better. But just a few thoughts on what we just read here. This amazing confession by Rahab, who is a pagan. She says that the Lord himself has given that land to the people of Israel. She lives there, born and raised. This is her land. And she says, no, this land has been promised to the people of God. And she says, us, all the inhabitants, the people from, from Jericho, Ai, and so forth, all of us here in, in Canaan, we know that we don't stand a chance. Our hearts are melting. We're terrified of you because God is with you. And she knows that because God has revealed his power at the Exodus. She says, drawing up the Red Sea, defeating the Egyptians, and then defeating these two other kings that had opposed them not long before as they were approaching the Promised Land. And she says that your God is the one true God in all the heavens, over earth, beneath everything, the whole cosmos, the whole universe. Yours is the only one true God. And she knows the people of Canaan who are evil, that they're going to be destroyed. She knows it's coming. She knows. She's heard and she has believed that God is coming to destroy her people. She's recognizing that her gods are false and there is the one true God. And it's not her gods, it's a God revealed in the scriptures, the God of Israel, who would later send us Jesus. And she is making profound confessions. Verses 12 and 13, listen to what happens, what she keeps saying. Now then, so in light of this confession, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will do kindly with my father's house and give me a sign that you will, that you will save alive my my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. She's begging for mercy. She knows judgment is coming. She knows. She knows it. And yet, she is here begging for kindness, is the word she uses, which acts as the same word describing God's covenant faithfulness, how God is Faithful, he is his loving kindness. And she uses that same word, kindness, because she knows that, that God is holy and that he's a judge, but he's also kind. And these two men represent God and the people of God. And so she is, she's saying, I know, I know that it's coming. 
I know we deserve this, but will you please show me kindness? She has shown kindness to these men, and she's begging for mercy. And these two men, verse 14, say, And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell of this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. These are good men. And they realize that she has blessed and God has provided her and wants to save her and her family. And so they guarantee her safety when they come to destroy the land and take it because it's been given to them by God. So what you're seeing here is she trusts these two men. And so clearly they weren't seeing her for any immoral reasons. These are godly men that she trusts and they have proven their character, and so she's trusting in God. And so verses 15 through 21 describe the conversation of how they get out and leave Jericho. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to the words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. What you're seeing here is that God is sovereign. He's in complete control of providing Rahab, having us to live in the wall. The gates are sealed. There's no way out. But because of where she lives, she can let them down through her window with a rope. And they're coming. Destruction for Jericho is absolutely coming. And yet, she's going to be spared. And there's going to be a rope, a cord, a red one, that's going to mark that house so that when the Israelites come, they will spare that home. And she tells them how to escape. Go hide in the caves and in the mountains for three days before you go and cross at the crossing. Because if you go any sooner, they're going to catch you. Wait three days. The search party will give up and you can cross safely. So then what happens? Verse 22 and 23. It says, they departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all that had happened to them. So what you're seeing is they, they hang out for a few days in the mountains and the hills, and then the search party goes back to Jericho, and they just waltz across in the crossing and go back to General Joshua, and they report everything that had happened, how God provided Rahab, and how everyone was afraid of their God and of them. And so the Canaanites know what's coming. Last verse, finish the chapter. And it said to Joshua, 
Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. And so they're encouraged. They have hope that what God has told them to do, to go defeat those that are in opposition, the enemy, that it's guaranteed that they're all afraid of God and of them, that their hearts are, are melting in fear. This is a remarkable story. But it's not just a story. It's a story that is absolute truth revealed to us from the Spirit of God that's designed to shape our lives. And so our lives have to be not, not just listened to this, but really be shaped by this. So there's truths here that reveals the nature of faith, the nature of how we're to trust God. And we're talking about these three truths. And so let's look at them. Hopefully, maybe you've identified them along the way. The first one, the first truth we ask, what is the basis for our trust? Well, trust in God is rooted in the revelation of God. And so that is the foundation. That is the basis. So trust in God is rooted in the revelation of God. So God's revealed word. Our God speaks. So let's define revelation for you. And I don't mean the last book in the Bible, Revelation. That is a revelation. I'm talking about God's holistic, all of the Bible as revelation. So revelation is the disclosure by God of truths. So again, the disclosure of disclosure by God of truths that people could not arrive without divine initiative and enabling. So it's basically God showing us truths about himself and the world and ourselves that we would otherwise never know. And so if God doesn't reveal who he is, that he is a creator and that he is holy and that he has a plan to save us, we wouldn't know. So the Bible is God's self-disclosure. He's showing us who he is. He's showing us that he is holy, that he is sovereign, that he is powerful that he is all-wise, and that he is eternal. God is revealing who he is, but the Bible also reveals who we are. And so humans try, through their self-disclosure, humans try to understand and be enlightened, but without revelation, our reason will fail. We need God to reveal who we even are. The Bible reveals that we are created for him, for his enjoyment, but we're corrupted and we're selfish and we're sinful and we're weak and we're desperate for his salvation, it reveals that about us as well. And it reveals that God sends the final Joshua, Yeshua, he sent Jesus to come and die on the cross for you and for me because he loves you. And I don't know what your background spiritually is and I don't know if you've ever actually really pondered that, but you have to know and believe today that God loves you. No matter how much of a mess you've made of your life, no matter what you're struggling with today, God loves you. And He absolutely has a plan for you. And how do I know that God loves you? You look to the cross. For God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. He proves his love with the cross. There's no greater display of love 
than Jesus enduring our guilt and our shame on the cross. The very same experience that all the Canaanites would deserve to be destroyed because there is no judge under heaven that would ever say that the Canaanites were innocent. They would kill their own children. They would sacrifice their children to the god Molech. The sexual morality, the Canaanites were evil people, and God's judgment was coming in the form of the Israelites. And so God is holy. And if we're honest, maybe we don't sacrifice our kids to Molech the way the Canaanites did, but we sacrifice our kids in other ways. A lot of parents aren't as engaged as they ought to be. And they're pursuing other things and they don't have time to actually invest in their children. And to put the children on the altar of whether it be work or other pursuits or whatever it might be. But we are not better than the Canaanites. We are just as evil as they were. We are just as sinners, just as guilty. And yet, Jesus paid the price to save us from our sins. And so what you're seeing in Joshua is critical. What we're seeing here is that God speaks, God revealed himself because who heard it? Rahab. Rahab knew about God. She knew about him. She heard what he had done. She had heard the promises about God, promise to Abraham that he would not forsake his people. And how there's joy for the people of God. She had heard that. She knew the promises of God. And she believed in them. She was trusting in God. She was trusting in what, and the revelation that she had. She had heard about God. And so she received it. And she truly placed her complete trust in God. She was trusting His promises, but you must know God's promises before you can then trust in them. And Rahab did know them, and she's showing trust. Our trust is in God's word. We trust in our God who's revealed in his scriptures. We do not trust what we see around us. Just think for a second about Rahab, okay? She knows what's coming. No one else does. People are getting married like normal Guys are trying to get the girlfriends to say yes to marry them, like normal. Women are still going to the mall to go shopping. They were going to the markets and still shopping. Guys are still going to the fields to raise their crops. People were still going to work. Parents were still trying to raise their kids. It was normal. It was just life. Everyone in Jericho was living life in their huge city quite normally. Routine. Day in, day out, work, kids, you know, bills. This is what life was. It was her life. And so if Rahab had looked around and looked at what she was seeing in normal, routine, everyday life, she would have thought, no, I don't have to worry about what's happening out there beyond the Jordan River with God's judgment coming upon our sin and my need to truly trust in that God and repent of my sin which, by the way, she did, which we'll see later in Joshua chapter 6, that she does do that. She does become part of God's people. But if she had looked around her and what she saw, she would have not believed this. 
She was believing in the revelation of a God who spoke in real time, in real space, actual, total truth. Some of you in this room, I'm sure you believe that this whole church thing is a good social thing. But this is a positive experience, and it's good for people to be encouraged, and it's a good social activity. It's far more than that. Because God has spoken, and he's real. He's spoken real time and real history. And Satan is real. Our sin is real. God is real. Jesus really did die. He really was resurrected. He really is alive right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he has really sent his real spirit to indwell his believers and to encourage us, to strengthen us, to fight against the enemy. And we have a very real battle. And there are very real souls who don't know Jesus, who don't know. They haven't heard about God. They haven't received his revelation yet. And it's up to us to tell them. To tell them God has spoken. And he's a judge. And he's coming. But the judgment's been paid. Jesus already paid for it. If you would just trust in him, you'll have joy and forgiveness and an eternity of enjoying God with his people. These indescribable blessings that we have are absolutely real. And we can live victorious lives if we trust. If our lives are based on, rooted in God's revealed word and his revealed character and so you have to know what god's word says you have to believe it and then beg the spirit to help you to apply it as you do it with others helping you along the way and so trust in god is rooted in the revelation of god second truth so we ask well what is the essence what is what is the substance of our faith what is the essence of our trust well recognition of total dependence on God. Recognition of total dependence on God. You see, Rahab demonstrated that she was totally dependent on God. She hid the spies. She deceived the authorities. She let them out from her window. She marked her window with a cord that indicates, well, what is this cord about? We don't even know but it definitely was obvious where the Israelites could see it. She wasn't hiding anything. She was hiding the spies, but her faith wasn't hidden. She believed in the one true God. She risked execution. If she had been caught, the king of Jericho would have cut her head off. I guarantee you. There would have been no way that Rahab, the prostitute, would have, would have survived being caught hiding the the spies of the Israelites. Why would she do that? Why would she risk everything? Because she was loyal to the kingdom of God, not to the kingdom of Jericho. She was loyal to the one true God and to his kingdom and God's purposes, and it just didn't matter. But you see it in the spies too. They were also depending upon God. They're hiding in the sloppy mess on her roof. The gates are shut. They, the authorities know the spies are in the city, and there they are hiding, and there's no way out. They're trapped in Jericho. 
They're relying on God to find a way. Absolute, total dependence on God. So these main characters, both Rahab and the two spies, are demonstrating that trust is total dependence on God. Now, when we talk about this, a lot of people talk about following Jesus or going to churches. Oh, I'm, I'm religious, or I'm going to get... I need to get back in church, we use that same language, right? Or I, I need more religion, or I'm a person of faith, is sometimes used. Or people will say, well, I, I believe in God. I, I believe in God. Okay, all of this language, I'm not saying it's evil, but a lot of people that use this kind of language oftentimes don't understand what it means to truly trust in Jesus. And when we use the word faith or, or trust or even belief, There's three categories. There's three like types of faith. And it's important to know what we're talking about. Let's define our terms. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration as I help you to understand these three categories or types of belief or faith or trust. The first one is picture yourself that you're on a cruise, okay? So you're enjoying the cruise, and and maybe you've been drinking a little bit too much, I don't know, but you're on the rail and you fall over, all right? And so now you're floating in the ocean and there's a huge boat, middle of the ocean, and the boat's still going and you're, and you're swimming down in the ocean. That's not a good position to be in. Now, at this point, suppose you think to yourself, hmm, I'm out here in the ocean and there, there goes the ocean, the cruise liner, and I believe that life preservers exist. I, I believe that there are these circular objects that usually have four red stripes on them, and I believe that life preservers do indeed exist. I even believe that life preservers are a, a positive thing in the world. They're a good thing to have life preservers. You could say, I believe in life preservers preservers. But I don't need one. I'm okay without one. I can just swim back to the ship. So this would be knowledge. This is the first type of faith. Some people say, well, I, I believe, and they're talking about they have knowledge. They, they have an understanding that there is a man named Jesus who maybe was God. I don't know in their mind. They're, they're skeptical but they believe that God exists, maybe. But they're trying to reach safety eternally on their own, on their own ability, because their belief is knowledge. Now, there's a second category. Now, suppose you're in, there in the ocean and you're swimming, and you think, okay, I, I believe life preservers exist, but I'll go a step beyond that. I believe that they're actually good. I, I think life preservers are good. Hey, I am Four life preservers. I affirm life preservers that they're a positive thing. So now you're a step beyond just knowledge of existence. Now your second is assent or agreement. So now someone says, I, I agree that, that religion is good. And I, I agree that you should go to church if, if, if you're into that kind of thing. Now, if, if you are in the place where you say you're a Christian because you come from a quote-unquote Christian nation, and, and your faith, your, your belief is in God, in religion, and it's either just knowledge of 
or agreement that it's a good thing that's not going to help you. Much like that person in the ocean who agrees that preservers exist or thinks that they're a good thing but is trying on their own to swim back to the boat, they will drown. They're not going to make it. But there's a third category. You're out in the ocean, and you realize there's no way that I can swim back to the boat that's way too far away. I'm going to drown. I need help. I need a life preserver. And so you start screaming, Hey, throw me a life preserver. Hey, throw me one. And then they throw you one. And you swim right up to it. And then you cling to it. And you hold on to it. And you don't let go. And you're pulled back into the boat. And you're saved. That is trust. Not just knowledge. Not just agreement. Trust. Saving trust. Saving faith is saying, I have no other hope. There's no way I'm going to make it on my own. I know, I know Jesus existed. I believe he is good. And beyond that, I'm trusting in him alone to save me. Beyond agreement. We cast ourselves in the mercy of a holy God, total dependence on God. Where are you today? Is your faith simply at knowledge or maybe even agreement? Or do you truly have trust in God alone? Trust is recognition of total dependence on God. The truth is all of us are dependent on God, but do you recognize it and respond appropriately to Jesus? Last, we ask, well, what is the result of trust as we close? What is the result? So we talked about what it is. We talked about what it's based on. Well, what is the result of this? Trusting God results in faithful obedience to God. And so faith results in faithful obedience to God. And so if you have true, saving trust in Jesus, it will lead to obedience. No obedience then that shows that the trust is in question. And so Rahab was incredibly faithfully obedient to God. She gave up everything. I mean, do you realize what she gave up? We talked earlier about her security. She did. She risked execution, but she gave up more than that. She gave up her nationality because she became part of the people of Israel in chapter 6. When Jericho is destroyed, she became part of them. So she gave up her identity. She gave up her gods to embrace the one true God. Her whole way of life, she gave it up. She would see Jericho destroyed. Her culture gone to a degree. And being part of something totally new. She, but she wanted it. She didn't care because she was trusting God. Give her her profession, no longer a prostitute. How do we know? Because she married a man named Salmon, who was a prince in the tribe of Judah. She became a princess. Absolutely remarkable. Who later would give birth through the lineage to Jesus of Nazareth. 
This is just mind-blowing that this pagan prostitute lost in her sin hears about God. She gets a revelation. She trusts in Him. And then she shows that trust with obedience. And God honors her in the most remarkable way where she becomes a great, great, great grandmother of our Master, Jesus. Absolutely astounding what the Spirit of God does to people. He transforms us so that we live obedient lives. And so here's the progression. God makes promises, and then we trust Him, and then that leads to taking action. So God speaks. We, we trust, and then the Spirit empowers us to take action to follow Jesus. This is how it works. There is no hope apart from Jesus. No hope. The only hope is in Christ alone. And Rahab was trusting in the God who would one day bring Jesus. So what are you trusting in? And I mean that as we close here, honestly. But what are you really trusting in? How is your obedience? Because if your obedience is lacking, then that's a sign that you're not trusting in Jesus. We have to spend time abiding in Christ, renewing that trust, walking in the Spirit, enjoying the presence of Christ. And when that's happening, when there's this joy bubbling over from enjoying Jesus, then the obedience naturally flows from it. So our God speaks. How is He speaking to you this morning? Our trust is rooted in God's revelation. Our trust is recognition and total dependence on God. And our trust results in faithful obedience to God. If you've never responded to Jesus before with complete trust, you can grab hold of the ultimate life preserver sent to us from heaven itself. And you can experience this joy and this salvation we're talking about this morning. Can you please pray with me? Gracious Father, this morning as we're in awe of who you are and how you love us and how you have made a way through your Son to save us, we give you all the praise. We give you all the glory for you alone are worthy of it. We have no glory, but you are infinite in your glory. Father, we have seen it, even just a glimpse through your Spirit. We're able to reflect it as we trust in you alone. Father, I pray that it would be a church that is faithful to you, that loves one another, that is faithful to go forth and make and develop disciples for your glory. Help us to do it, Father. We need you, and we thank you that we have you. And we pray in the name of our King, our Savior Jesus. Amen.